Uh, throughout history, and certainly the history of, of the church, arguably the, the greatest theological and in many ways experiential challenge that the Christian uh, has faced and the Christian church has faced is the so-called problem of suffering or problem of evil. And that challenge is summarized uh, quite well by the ancient philosopher, I believe of the first century, Epictetus, who said this, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot or he can, but does not want to. Uh, in other words, if God is all-powerful, he has the ability to abolish suffering and abolish evil, and he's all-loving and he desires to do so, why is there suffering? Well, however one understands or reconciles the, the presence of suffering in our world, one thing is absolutely certain, and that is the Bible in no way shies away from speaking about suffering and speaking into the hard reality and presence of suffering in its many forms. And as we continue in our series through Thessalonians, we transition from Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica to the second, his second letter. And right at the beginning of this second letter, in the first chapter, uh, suffering takes center stage. And Paul not only addresses the presence and the reality of it, but he identifies a central purpose for why suffering exists and how God is going to bring his people out of suffering and into this wonderful glory. So at 2 Thessalonians, we'll read uh, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Listen now to God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We recall that it was during Paul's second missionary journey uh, that is recorded in uh, Acts chapter 17, that he, along with Silas and Timothy, traveled to the city of Thessalonica, and after preaching over the course of three Sabbath days, 
the church there was born. And after a brief time, perhaps beyond those weeks, a few months of ministering, Paul and his uh, companions were forced out of the city and were told they traveled to Berea together. And then Paul went on to Athens and then into Corinth. And most believe, many believe, that it was during his year and a half stay in Corinth, 18 months, that not only did Paul send Timothy back to Thessalonica to minister to them there, to encourage and exhort them, but also to uh, report back as to their condition and their status, but also while he was in Corinth, he wrote 1 Thessalonians and shortly after 2 Thessalonians, in the very words that we have just heard read. And Paul's missionary efforts, just taking his time in Corinth alone, sending Timothy to Thessalonica, at the same time serving the church in Corinth, and at the same time writing two letters to the Thessalonians. It reminds us of something very important about the ministry of our Lord. That is, our God is ministering to many different people, many different churches, and many different circumstances all at the same time. I mean, just imagine the omnipotence, the power of our God. In this room alone, how our God ministers to each of us individually with our varied struggles and varied circumstances. And beyond that, in our presbytery, in our denomination throughout uh, the U.S. and the true churches in our country and beyond, uh, that, that's the omnipotence of God. You know, human beings can hardly do two things well at the same time, right? Some of you may be multitaskers. But think about the power of God to do that. That is his omnipotence. He knows Timothy's needs and ministering to them and Paul's and the church in Corinth and the Thessalonians. And his word and his spirit is sufficient to minister in that kind of way. And the particular need and question that's likely weighing heavy upon the Thessalonians is that in the midst of suffering, personally, corporately as a congregation... We know in our day and age uh, much of what's going on around the world in the church itself with that kind of global uh, suffering. How will the Lord provide relief? How is he going to comfort and relieve his people and put the world right again? This is a passage filled with the reality of suffering. And, And that also as a result of the affliction they're receiving from evildoers evil oppression. We see that in verses 4 through 6. Paul recognizes persecutions that they're experiencing. We know that this particular church was born in the midst of that. They are suffering, he mentions, receiving affliction from others. Now, the reality of suffering may not surprise us in reading a passage like this. But I think what should perhaps surprise us, or at least grab our attention, is that in the midst of suffering and persecution and evil, Paul declares God as a just judge. That that this God is righteous in what he's doing. Fair, just. He says in verse 5, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And so if we sit on this text for a while, in these verses, it it may create a bit of a tension. This is one of the fundamental charges that the world makes about the God we worship and profess. 
How can such evil and suffering exist with this kind of God? And Paul is declaring, he's proclaiming a God who is a righteous and just judge in the midst of a world full of injustice and evil and unrighteous affliction that they're experiencing as Christians. What does Paul mean when he says this is evidence, verse 5, of the righteous judgment of God? If we get hold of this and the surrounding uh, verses, it will help give us a biblical kingdom, eternal perspective on suffering in the world. Because we often don't just want to know the when of suffering. When is this going to end? We want to know the why. What's the purpose? Isn't that what we want to know? It's hard to imagine anything worse than pointless suffering. Can we think of anything? It's hard. But if there's a purpose, it enables a person to endure long and to endure well that suffering. And our endurance and faith amidst trials and suffering has an all-important purpose. It's evidencing something. It's demonstrating and showing forth something. And one of the things it demonstrates is our kingdom worthiness. Look again at verse 5. What does Paul mean by the word this? This is evidence. It seems to me this is what he referred to in verse 3 and 4. Paul is commending them and he's expressing thanks for their growing faith, the increase of their love for each other, their steadfastness, and their endurance amidst affliction. In other words, their sincere Christian character is evidence of their kingdom worthiness that the genuineness of their faith has proven that God has judged rightly. It's as if the Thessalonians are in a kind of court. They're going through a great trial. And the judge is throwing down the gavel and he's declaring a just and right judgment. That is, you indeed are the people of God. Your lives are evidencing kingdom worthiness. So in this sense, God's judgment is not merely something that will be demonstrated at the last day. That that final judgment. His judgment is also a present reality. God is judging now. In this case, it's a present declaration, a, a pronounced verdict. If you look at the first chapter of Philippians, Paul says something similar toward the end. He says in verse 27 to those believers in Philippi that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And then he says this, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So as they demonstrate courage and a worthy faith In the face of opposition, this is a sign to those who oppose them that they are marked for destruction. And yet it's the Christian's evident faith that reveals God has judged us and marked us as the righteous. And if Paul's saying that we've been judged by God and declared righteous, our our suffering is evidence of being worthy of his kingdom, this should drastically influence our perspective 
on suffering. It is to prove and reveal God's judgment as righteous. And so that's all important as we reflect on our own lives, as we go through trying times, individually, corporately, through valleys in our Christian faith, through struggles, amidst a godless culture. How we are living is evidencing not only our kingdom worthiness, but indeed God's declaration is right. We are his people. And one of the most helpful places to see how suffering and trials come to us is in Jesus' most well-known parable, which we heard read earlier, the parable of the sower. There, the sower God, he sows seed of the gospel. It falls on different, many different places, hearts, people's lives. Some seed of the gospel falls on path, paths, others on rocky ground, some among the thorns, and then some fall on good soil. But as we heard, Jesus goes on, in this case, to explain this particular parable. And I would draw our attention to chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 20, where he describes and explains the second and third soils. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word. He immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. So he endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises, he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this one hears the word, but it's the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches that choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Jesus and Paul Uh, focus in on areas where professing believers are tempted to give up. And one of those central areas is the place of suffering, trials, temptations. Uh, The pains of life become heavy. Unlike much of the world's view of suffering, which it seems to me sees suffering as having no real or ultimate purpose, the scripture has razor-sharp purposes. And one of them is to prove and form the people of God. We know James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, faithful endurance, and this brings maturity. Many of us are perhaps familiar with the the 19th century uh, minister of the Church of Scotland, Robert Mary McShane. Uh, he was known as one of the most uh, godly and, and loving and, and shepherding uh, pastors. And uh, while he was engaged uh, to be married at the age of 29, he died. He died from typhus. There was an estimated, of, estimated uh, number of about 7,000 people uh, at his memorial service. And among his very pastoral writings, he, he wrote this. Some believers are very surprised when they are called to suffer. They thought they would do some great thing for God, but all God permits them to do is to suffer. Just suppose you could speak with those who have gone to be with the Lord. Everyone has a different story, yet everyone has a tale of suffering. One was persecuted by family and friends. Another was inflicted with pain and disease. Others neglected by the world 
Another was bereaved of children. Another had all these afflictions. But you will notice that though the water was deep, they all have reached the other side. Not one of them blames God for the road he led them. Salvation is their only cry. Are there any of you, dear children, murmuring at your lot? Don't sin against God. This is the way God leads all his redeemed ones. So important for us to remember. Uh, We are uh, to be a loving community, uh, a mission-centered community, a believing community, but we're also called to be a a suffering community. And, And Paul's words give us a helpful and right view of suffering, that as we grow in faith and love and endurance, this reveals God's right judgment. We are indeed his kingdom people. But Paul does not end his words about suffering there. God's judgment there in verse 5, it seems, it seems to me to have an already not yet uh, dynamic. He, God, is already judging. He's judging rightly who are his. But we see this text in, in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians having a very forward look. It, it's eschatological in its nature. So the judgment of God yet to come is also clearly in view. That judgment of the wrath of God upon those who have afflicted the church and all who have rejected the Lord Jesus. So we see in verse 6, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Though reconciling a world filled with suffering and evil and injustice with an all-powerful, all-good God may be mysterious to us, Paul's words bring our lens into a greater focus. Because Paul's telling this church that in order to make sense In order to understand this present mess or broken world, as well as to trust the Lord in the midst of it, we have to lift our eyes and look at what is coming in the end. To make sense of this present world, we need to see what is coming. That brings the present into greater focus. And so what we see at the end is this, in a way, great reversal taking place. We see evil, injustice, those who have afflicted the church, repaid. There's a final justice. Paul says, since God sees it just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. This is the day of the Lord that that Paul has mentioned in the previous letter toward the end in chapter 5, when he said that while people are saying peace, and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. It will be a day of great horror and pain. Not because God is unloving or unkind, but because instead of embracing the mercy and the free offer of the gospel in Jesus Christ, people love their own lives at the cost of rejecting it. And instead of receiving his mercy, they receive his justice. 
this is a heavy passage worth our meditation. It's also why Paul can say in Romans 13, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome with evil. Overcome evil with good. We heard a portion of Psalm 73 read. We recited it together for our call to worship. That psalm is a wisdom psalm where the psalmist is struggling as he looks out at the world and he sees the ungodly living their lives with what looks like apparent ease, comfort, even mocking the godly. They're puffed up with pride. In Psalm 73, he says their bodies are fat and sleek. They have no troubles. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them. They scoff and speak with malice. And as the psalmist struggles with this, he says this, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, Lord, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. He gains a perspective for his present situation by looking at what is coming. By seeing the end, we we can sing the words of the hymn. Though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. We can be patient. We can endure. We can be meek. Yielding to the ways of God for his justice will be known. But also by looking at the end, we see that present suffering is a temporary reality. It's temporary. Verse 7, God will grant relief to you who are afflicted. And in 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed, As simple or complex as your life is right now, as hard or easy as it is right now, as light or burdensome as it feels right now, we should not only see the splendor and joy of what is coming, we should long for it. We should long for it in our hearts. And by the marvelous grace of God, we even now taste of that relief. We taste of the comfort of God. Comfort, comfort my people. The Lord says through Isaiah. Our Lord not only promises a full and future rest, He has come. Our Lord has come and entered our suffering as the Son of Man and the Son of God. As the Good Shepherd, He has laid down His life for us, His people, the sheep. Is there any clearer, is there any more profound picture about our Lord's interest in a suffering world, than to enter it, to take on flesh, to assume human nature, to bear our suffering, ultimately to bear the wrath of God in our place and to begin renewing all things. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we thank you for 
the promise of a future and ultimate relief, a great and glorious comfort in which we are reunited to you in uh, a fullness of communion and fellowship. How we thank you, Lord, that you reveal to us your unfolding purposes in redemption and that there will be a consummation, that there will be a final judgment, that you are indeed a God who is righteous and just. And yet, you are a God full of mercy. How you offer freely the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, to the whole world. And by your saving mercy, how we give thanks that you have called us to yourself, that we can know your salvation, that that indeed would be our cry, salvation. We pray that you would, uh, Lord, strengthen us in the midst of our own sufferings and weaknesses. Lord, cause us to cling to your word. May your spirit sustain us and uh, go before us that we would walk uh, in his ways. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, Lord, uh, amidst our uh, journey of faith. We give you thanks for all of your wonderful works. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.